welcome once again to Learning Digital Photography. I'm your host, Jason Anderson, and you are listening to episode number 50. On this week's show, we've got a lot of fun news to talk about. We've got the listener questions and answers, and with us this week on the show is Andy Smith, our fabulous Lightroom photographer from Dallas, Texas. Andy, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jason. How are you doing this week? Okay, how are you? Much better now that I hopefully have all these technical issues. This is take number three for the podcast, folks. So hopefully this, this every time. Every time. For some reason, one of us has technical problems. But that's what we've got coming up on this week's show. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a second. Okay, welcome back to the show. So to start things off, we're going to try and power through this before we can have more uh, network problems or technical difficulties. Um, we're going to power through the news real quick. There were uh, three interesting news articles that uh, we uh, both had found on the interwebs or the internets or however you want to refer to it. Uh, the first one came from uh, the LA Times, and this is just kind of an update on this ongoing story about these Ansel Adams negatives and whether or not they really are Ansel Adams negatives. For those of you that listen to the podcast, you probably know about this story already because I had mentioned it in the past. But there was a guy who had purchased some negatives from, I think, what was it, a garage sale? Do you, had you read the story yet, Andy? Was it a garage sale? Okay, yeah, so he bought these negatives from a garage sale, and it turns out it looks like they might be part of Ansel Adams' earlier work from his, you know, when he first started out as a photographer, and we all know Ansel Adams is probably one of the pioneers of uh, the American Southwest and, and, and land, and just, you know, shooting America's natural landscape. And there's been a lot of discussion recently about whether or not this guy even really found them, whether or not he, you know, already had them and claims he found them, or whether or not they're even Ansel Adams' work. And um, it's just kind of an interesting development because there's been a lot of evidence and counter evidence, and you know, different theorists and and different uh, theories as to whether or not these really are legitimate. And it's, it's just an interesting news story. Like I said, this is in the L.A. Times, and I just thought it bears mentioning since I had mentioned it in the past. Uh, Andy, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think these are Ansel Adams' works? You know, I'm not sure. I don't know enough to be an expert about it, but we, I think we do have to remember that they're his earlier work, so it's not going to be as refined as the work that we know from him. Right, and I think that was the big question. Is, is the, A lot of people were saying, well, this doesn't look as refined as his work does traditionally in uh, what we know of his experience, so that's a good point that it um, – it could just be evidence of the fact that this was earlier work. And what's at stake here is actually pretty significant because the uh, the the resale value of these, I think they were saying it could amount to what, like $200 million? Yeah, some pocket change there. Yeah, yeah. you might be able to buy a new lens with that. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, one or two new kit lenses, you know, just the small kit lenses. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's a significant chunk of pocket change, so it's worthwhile following that story, and it is photography-related, so we figured we'd throw that in there. The second news story Andy actually uh, tipped me off on, this is news on the Canon side of things. Andy, what was your little news story? Canon announced five new explorers of light, and they are all video. 
Now, when you say they're all video, do you mean the interviews are video or the photo- or the explorers of light are videographers? The explorers of light are videographers. And that is super impressive. And it, it's just telling of the times, I think, because, you know, we've talked about the convergence of still and video on the show in the past and other podcasts have talked about this as well. But to see the explorers of light actually being videographers, I think, is really telling. Had you had a chance to... Um, Look at any of the interviews because they actually have interviews with each of these. Would you say five people? One, two, three, I believe there are five. Yeah, yeah I have five not people. Well, I'm sorry, you have or have not? I have not. I have thankfully been really busy shooting the last few weeks. That, that's definitely a good thing to be as busy. Well, the five guys that, um, five gentlemen, I should say, that have been added to the Explorers of Light uh, category over at Canon, and maybe we should mention that briefly the explorers of light is kind of an honor that's bestowed on photographers that shoot or people that use canon gear and it's 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 a very distinctive honor to uh be included in that select group of uh artists so that's why it's news in and of itself is that they've added more explorers of light the second is the fact that they are uh, videographers and they actually say on their uh learning uh canon digital learning center page that these people are revolutionizing HD TV and film production. And there's an interview with each five of, with, with each of the five of them. The five individuals are Alex Buono, Crescendo Notarial. Do you know how to pronounce his name? I have no idea. Let's go with Notarial, and I'm sorry if that's mispronouncing your name. Uh, Russell Carpenter, Shane Hurlbrot. And Rodney Charters are the new five, so congratulations to all five of them. We'll throw a link in the show notes to go over and check them out, but it really is interesting that the latest five are all videographers because it just speaks to the the ongoing convergence that we're seeing between still and video. Do you shoot video, Andy? Do you do any video in your work? I do uh, some. I actually was hired to do a job about a year ago just because I did shoot video. Oh, very cool. And which gear are you using to shoot your video? I use a 5D Mark II. And you're liking the video with that okay? Does I do. It produces satisfactory results because it's that, that's the one that's HD, right? That's the one that has yeah. a full HD? Yeah. Yeah, so that's some pretty sweet video there. So, yeah, that's the uh, second news item is the uh, – Video shooting, and for the for the record, I actually do not shoot video. I don't have a a body that can produce the video, so I don't do a lot of uh, high def video or much low def video for that matter either. I've only got a uh, a point and shoot, a PowerShot A590, which does some pretty rinky dink video. So I'll do that from time to time, but I don't use that as a part of my work uh, predominantly. Our last news story. Uh, was that what was that? That was the uh, the lawsuit that was going on, wasn't it? Yes, with yeah. the Broadway play. Yeah, the Broadway play, fella. That's right. Broadway play was this fella, and they got sued for using a photographer's work. It was a it was a backdrop. They uh, they they uh, had this old image that I, f- I forget who the photographer was. If I pulled up the news story, that might help. You know, can I be prepared for my own show here? Wait a <laughs> But uh, there was a photographer uh, – what was her name? I forget what her name is. I don't think they mentioned her name actually. Did they mention the photographer's name? Um, I don't remember. Let me pull up the news story again. But anyway, the whole story was that they used this photographer's images as part of a backdrop without her permission. And the play is now in the process of replacing the image um, 
and the news article said hopefully with one they've asked for, but they're being sued for some pretty big bucks. Uh, it's a it's a Brooklyn-based photographer, and this is a photograph that she took back in 1970-77 of um, the Fella Cuties nightclub, the Shrine. So they're using it as part of their backdrop, and I guess they didn't get her permission, and she's now suing for $150,000. So it's that's some pocket change there as well. And, I find uh, it ironic that it's a it's a production that would turn around and sue somebody if they had, if their copyrights had been infringed. Exactly, it's kind of it's the it's the Alanis Morissette kind of irony that you tend to see in those kind of scenarios. And this is just the next, you know, the latest news in the um, copyright infringement saga because there's always. Some kind of copyright infringement going on, or someone using an image where they didn't have permission for, and this this goes back as you know as far as one cares to go back to see that people are trying to get away with not paying for copyright or not getting permission to use images, and this just speaks to the larger issue of how important it really is not only to copyright your work but to register your work and to stay on top of it. Stay on top and you know monitor the marketplace to make sure no one is using your work without permission. And I know Andy, you said you do uh, uh, copyright your own work, but you copyright often a lot more often than I do. Well, how often do you submit your work to copyright office? I try to submit it every other month. Wow, and that's a, and that's a lot of images. I think it depends on um, on how much you shoot, how often you shoot, and how often it's um, actually going to be used, like for commercial. You know, if there's commercial value to your work, you know, if you take a snapshot of Aunt Emma over at a birthday party, that might not have as much commercial value as, say, some sports photography or, you know, other types never of. Never know. Yeah, that's true. You never know. It's always good to copyright everything. So you go what? You go what? Every other month, you said. I try to. Every other month, and you do this all online now, right? Because they have the. Uh, the online procedure. How long does it usually take you to go through the online process? With just submitting it or getting all my files? Everything, like yeah, from beginning to end. So do you do you like organize them all into one subfolder and then upload just that one subfolder, or do you connect and then go pick and choose your images? What's your whole process for doing that? I have an action that resizes everything to a thumbnail. Oh, nice. Um, so the file's not so big. So that is that is that to optimize like the upload process or so you yeah. can do more images? Um, both. Oh, okay, okay. I've not done the online version yet. I'm I'm kind of a traditionalist. I send it in, so I've not done the online option yet. And how many images do you typically send in when you send it in? I so, send in everything I've shot since the last time. Really? I, wow. Because well, anything that's been edited. Um, oh, okay. And could possibly be sold as work or be out there in right. the public. Um, I, I'd rather I play by that. I'd rather be safe than sorry. Right. So do you, do you save a copy of everything then when it comes off your camera, or do yes. you go through? Oh wow. Okay. See what I do for my post process is after I shoot, I go into Lightroom, and then the ones that I know are throwaways that I'm not going to use, I delete those. And then from there, I'll determine which ones I actually might use online or I might sell or anything like that. And then I'll prepare uh, the media and send the media off to the copyright office. You know, I used to do that that way, but then I've gone back to unedited images and looked at it and went, why did I, why did I not keep this before? That's why I don't delete any of my files. 
You don't delete. Wow. Um, because you never know what you can go back and use. Well, and you know what? That's very true because with Lightroom 3, with the advancements there, I find myself going back through older images that I used to not be able to do anything with. And with the uh, new algorithms that Lightroom 3 has for sharpening and for noise reduction, it's taken a lot of previously unusable work and made it usable. Right. So I guess that's maybe a good point. Don't delete your images. You never know what you can recover down the road. Right, and you can, you know, you may have this sky picture that you're like, oh, whatever, this was an accident, I was just swinging around my camera, you know, yeah. you be able to replace the sky with it one day. Well, and it's funny you mention that, because I think a lot of my best pictures were taken actually by my hip. Right. Where my camera's been dangling down from my hip on my R-strap or whatever, and it's bounced around there and clicked the shutter. Then I'm like, hey, I don't remember taking that picture, that's a cool pic. I think my hip took that picture. Yeah. So, so some of those some of those accidental awesome pictures, accidentally awesome pictures come out occasionally. That was the news stories uh, for this week. We had uh, the three news stories. I think that pretty much wraps up the news. So we'll be back in just a minute. And we're going to get to the meat and potatoes of this week's show: presets versus style. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back. Well. For the meat and potatoes of this week's show, I wanted to bring Andy on the show in particular, primarily because she has a lot of presets in Lightroom, and she's actually generously, generously donated her presets to the Lightroom Workshop series that we have starting this coming weekend. But I wanted to bring her on because I heard a great podcast from This Week in Photography where they talked about presets and style. And I thought it was a good enough topic to actually um, talk to Andy about this and turn this into a podcast uh, for learning digital photography folks. And um, first off, I thought it might be helpful if we talked about what a preset is, uh, how you go about creating a preset. So I don't know if you have Lightroom open on your side, Andy. Can you do this stuff, Road, or do you need to have Lightroom in front of you? I always have Lightroom <laughs> is, is that like the first thing that fires up whenever your computer starts is Lightroom? Pretty much. That's I, my email. Yeah, I, th- I think for me it's the same way. I've got Firefox, Lightroom, and uh, TweetDeck as the three main apps that I open when I start my computer. So if you're inside Lightroom and you know you've got the different panels there, the library module, develop, slideshow, print, and web, presets are created from the develop module. And if you're looking in Lightroom and you look at the left-hand panel and you look at the right-hand panel, the right-hand panel is probably the one you're most familiar with, assuming, of course, that you're familiar with Lightroom, because that's where you can do your basic adjustments, you know, your tone curve, and you can do everything from white balance to exposure to brightness, clarity, vibrancy, all that stuff. So what you can do is inside of Lightroom, you can make whatever settings you want in the right-hand panel, and then if you look over on the left-hand panel, there are presets in there where you can actually use, and there's Lightroom presets that are made by Adobe when they have these black and white creatives for cream tone, cyanotype, selenium, red filter, all that great kind of stuff. And then there's another subcategory where there are user presets that you can import in. And um, part of what we're including in the Lightroom Workshop series are the the group of presets that Annie has put together as part of her workflow. So what you can do is you do these settings on the right-hand panel, and then you can save them as a preset. And to save them as a preset, what you'll do is once you've done your settings, there will be a little plus button just to the right of the whole preset panel. And you click on that, and that will take whatever settings you've changed from the default values and record that as a preset. So you click that button, you can actually, you can, you don't even have to, um, 
select everything. You can select whatever parts you want to make your preset. And, and that that is a big, huge hint on how to make a preset is don't click everything because if you have some unclicked, it makes your preset stackable. And what do you mean by stackable? Let's let's expand on that a little bit for a minute here. You can do, say, in my workflow set, you can do a black and white image and then put a tint and tone on top of it. So you've added some a tint to that black and white. So Very you can cool. Stack those presets. I've not stacked presets before, so that's good to know. Very good to know. Then anyway, that just gets back to the whole point of what you can do is select whichever ones you want to incorporate into that particular preset, give it a name, and then save it in your user presets folder. Or if you want, you can create other folders as well. So you can create presets for certain venues. I know Andy and I had talked about this previously where she does presets for particular venues, and you can save them in folders there. Why don't you talk about that for a minute, actually? That would be a good uh, talking point about how to configure different types of presets because you mentioned you do presets for sporting venues, right? Yes, each each football stadium or baseball ballpark seems to have different lighting. And um, I was realizing each time I shot there, I was doing the same thing over and over in every image. And so I created a preset and named it after the venue I was shooting. So, so Cowboy Stadium, Broncos Stadium. Right, I've not had the opportunity to shoot a well, Broncos stadium. Well, I, I, did, I, I didn't mean you shoot those. I just meant more like you know, from a, a larger right. scale, how people could understand when you know different stadium names are, because they probably wouldn't recognize a Dallas stadium specifically for uh, the. I'm venue. just giving you a hard time. <laughs> yeah, I would love to shoot at Broncos Stadium too. We um, digress. I we, have we, one for Cowboys Stadium. Oh, you have shot at Cowboys. What's the lighting like in there? Really good. Is, is it is it bright enough for you with that huge jumbotron? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty. I've never seen that live. How is that live looking inside the Dallas Stadium at that jumbotron? It's insane. I brought a friend out there, I'm totally off topic, who is a 49ers fan. Uh oh. And lives outside of DC. Uh oh. She walked out of the stadium after the tour with a Cowboys t-shirt. Wow, that's that amazed by it. That's sufficiently impressive. For, and for those of you that don't follow football, we're talking about uh, this this new type of uh, well, a jumbotron. I don't know how how do you explain a jumbotron? It's the scoreboard, basically. Yeah, it's, it's a seventy-yard HD TV. Yeah, it's it's a pretty stinking huge thing, and it, it shows the score, and there's video in there, so you can see like replays and that kind of stuff. And most stadiums have them either at one end or they're suspended in the middle. Well, the Cowboys Stadium one is suspended in the middle, and it's huge. It goes from what you say, seventy yards. Seventy yards. So it'll go from what the thirty-yard line of one side to the thirty-yard line of the other. Yeah, it's wow. We call it we affectionately call it the Jerrytron in Dallas. The Jerry, yeah. After the owner, <laughs> Jerry Jones. Yeah, so you, that's a great way to uh, incorporate and, and set up presets. It's for different venues. And uh, I, I guess from my own personal uh, experience and for an example, the presets that I have are primarily for the things that I do universally to every image. So my I have a presence preset where I adjust the clarity, vibrance, and saturation. And then I have a detail preset, and that will bring in the benchmark settings that I use for – 
sharpening and noise reduction. And inside of noise reduction, I'll specifically address luminance and color, and I'll set those to particular values, set that as a preset. And then the beauty of that is you can apply that in mass for like batch processing, like when Andy mentioned uh, using actions inside of Photoshop before Lightroom came around. It just expedites the post-production of images, so you can spend less time in the computer, more time out shooting. So that's how you create presets. That's what the whole purpose of presets is. Moving on, though, what I'd like to do is go a little bit more into this difference between what a preset is to talking about what someone's style is, because a lot of people think your presets are your style. And when you when you go to import your images, you apply the presets, you export, you're done. That's your style. That's not necessarily the case. And I wanted to get Annie's perspective on this. And we talked about this in the past, so I kind of know where she's coming from. And I I think we're on the same boat here. But let's just clarify, uh, just for the for the benefit of the listening audience that hasn't heard us talk about this before. And why don't you just go into a little detail, if you could, Andy, about what your personal thoughts are on presets versus style. Where does a preset start, or where does your style end and a preset start? I don't think we can do verses. I think they go hand in hand. I think your style is your end product where a preset helps you create that style. I mean, your style, defining your style starts from the second you pick up your camera and how you customize your settings in camera to how you post do your post-production to get your final image. I mean, you can put my presets onto your images and it's still going to have a different style than if you put them online. Could be, and that's because you're saying your camera has a different set of settings. And how you compose your images. So it's, composition's a part of style too then? I, I think so. I, and I'm playing devil's advocate here because I actually tend to view things the same way that it's not just the preset that defines your style. It's like what Andy said, you know, how your camera settings are set. You know, are you underexposing your flash? Are you do you have, you know, custom portrait settings, custom landscape settings inside your camera? Um how you light your scene I think is a part of what defines your style. Do you use ambient light? Do you traditionally use two strobes, camera left, camera right at forty five degrees? You know, do you backlight your images? Do you you know, how you light how you compose your images? I think that's all part of your style too. Right. Like I'm known for having sun flare. And you're not going to get that in a Lightroom preset. You're going to get that in camera. Yeah, that'd, that'd be pretty tough to produce in Lightroom because Lightroom doesn't really Lightroom, and I think that's probably an important distinction to make as well as how a Lightroom preset is different from a Photoshop action. We can get to that in a minute. So I think it's an interesting point though you make that a pre—it's not a preset versus a style. That a preset is just a small part of your own photography style. Right. I think. Presets are a lot like makeup where they don't – they just enhance your image. They're right. not there to completely make you over into you know, a face that you don't recognize. Right. It's just there to bring out the best parts of that image. Right, and I think a great example of this is the uh, the Dave Hill effect that uh, was pretty popular a while back where people were seeing a, a, a particular kind of edge lighting to uh, HDR-type photos, and they said, oh, that's the Dave Hill effect. Right. Well – Yes, it may be similar to the Dave Hill effect, but it's your own style if you're composing it slightly differently, if you're doing your post-production differently, and you know it's not just a particular style just because of the way it was developed. 
Correct. I think you're right there. I think it's different for everybody. And, you know, the degree to which different effects are applied. And the other thing that's, I think, unique about presets is that you can go in and tweak presets. And actually, I would recommend doing that. Even Yes, Andy, even with yours. Yeah, uh, I, you should not use a preset right out of the box. Right. That, that, that a preset is just a starting point. And you can actually see what is applied. So if you if you open Lightroom and you, 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 you pick an image and apply a preset to it, look back over at the right-hand panel for the develop module, and you'll see what settings have been applied mm-hmm. to your image. And then you can change sliders. So if you, if you like the preset, but it's applying too much saturation for a particular image, you can slide that saturate. It's okay to slide that saturation back. You know, don't be, don't don't be afraid of the sliders. Embrace the sliders and encourage the slide. I guess is my uh, recommendation. Encourage people to slide. Uh, that might be a good title for the podcast this week. So encourage the slide. Uh, don't be afraid to experiment with presets. Remember, they are just a starting point as part of our larger style. Um, to wrap things up, though. I think it might be helpful to make a distinction between what a preset is in Lightroom versus what an action is inside of Photoshop. And even if there is a distinction, did you want to uh, take a stab at that, Andy? I'll take a stab at it, and I want to hear what you have to say, too, about it. Okay. Once again, you can use both. I have images that I've used a preset and I've used a Photoshop action on. Um, I know a lot of people say, oh, I don't use preset. Photoshop anymore now that I have Lightroom. I use both. (laughs) Um, A preset, they're all, in a lot of ways, they're the same. (laughs) See, that's where I think it's tricky because they are very similar in what they do. They'll define certain things. I'm sorry, keep going, keep going. you, you You get to play with your raw images with a preset. Right. And... It's a little easier to customize it. Not saying that you can't customize a, a Photoshop action, a, a well-written Photoshop action. You can go in and customize. Yes. Um, but you can't. There's not. You can't do everything that a Photoshop action would as a Lightroom preset, and vice versa. So I, they're different, but they're the same in a lot of ways. You just have to figure out what you want to do to your image and what you want to. What you want to use, and I think that's the that's the ultimate point right there is what the ultimate endpoint goal is of the image that you're working on or the set of images that you're working on, because if you are doing a round trip from Lightroom to Photoshop, you are in essence going from manipulating the data that are going to be applied to a raw image to a pixel-based editor where you are actually making changes to the image itself. And in that regard, actions inside of Photoshop can have a lot more uh, potency, if you will, because you can do more with them. You can you can uh, you can apply well, you can apply crops in uh, Lightroom. Mhm. I do all my cropping uh, in Lightroom. I'm trying to think what you can do inside of Photoshop that you can't do inside of Lightroom with an action and drawing a blank right now. But I I'm sorry, go ahead. You can add sun flare. Yeah, you can add sun flare. You can add filter effects. Well, you can still kind of do that in Lightroom too. But I guess the whole point of what I'm getting at is that inside of Photoshop, it's more pixel-based editing 
Whereas in Lightroom, it's not pixel based. It's more stacking of settings that are then applied to the raw image. And I like how Andy said that, how in Lightroom, you're always working with your raw image. And in Photoshop, you're not. And I think that's the, probably the biggest distinction to make and what the difference is between a, a Lightroom preset versus a Photoshop action. And to be honest, I actually find that I'm not going into Photoshop that much more for photography. And I think that's an important distinction to make because for me, Photoshop has become more of a graphic design thing. So if I want to create a graphic for a website or if I'm trying to do some kind of um, – Compilation of images, or you know, some kind of uh, composite where I'm stacking multiple images across on top of each other and positioning on some larger template. I'm obviously not going to do that inside of Lightroom, but that's again, that's more graphic design related. That's not really photography related. So for my photography work, I find I'm not really going into uh, Photoshop that much more. I've pretty much gone to an all Lightroom workflow, which is kind of funny because initially when Lightroom came out, I was not a fan. I was not on board of Lightroom when it just came. Well, because I had just gotten up to speed in Photoshop. You know, I was on CS2 at the time, and I finally was figuring out how to do everything. And then Lightroom came along, and I was like, "Well, crap! I don't want to relearn everything all over again." So it took me until version two to really get on board with it. Now that I'm fully on board with Lightroom as my photography workflow goes, I don't really touch Photoshop anymore. And that also a large part of it has to do with how much quicker things are in Lightroom for me because Photoshop takes up such a large footprint. It takes a long time to load. It's, it takes up more hard drive space when you go to install it, whether you're on a Mac or a PC. And it's, it's just more beefy. There's more to it than there is in Lightroom. And Lightroom is just smooth and slick and easy to use. And you can – the funny thing is the way I look at Lightroom is I'm looking at my images and I'm not, I'm not even really looking at the slider values. I'm just – tweaking the slider adjustments until the image looks the way I want to see it. Whereas in Photoshop, I wasn't looking so much at the image as I was looking at the adjustment values that I was making inside of Photoshop. So just kind of an interesting segue digression there because we're known for digressing here on learning digital (laughs) photography. So that's just kind of an interesting distinction. Um, I think that's pretty much going to wrap up our uh, presets versus style discussion. Unless you did, you have anything else you wanted to add in there for that uh, discussion, Andy? I have nothing to add. Nothing to add. I, I I highly doubt that. I think there's always room for more additions, but we are going to be running out of time here on this show because we're already at the half hour mark and we still have the listener questions and answers to come to. So we're going to wrap up the discussion. We'll come back in just a minute with the listener questions and answers. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back for the three listener questions this week. Uh, one one of them actually came in from uh, Andy. She had uh, someone that had, I guess, did you say they emailed you about printing, story, uh, storyboard printing in Lightroom? Yes. Is that an email that came in? First question came in from Andy. They were asking about how to do storyboard printing inside of Lightroom. And it was a really good question, so I thought I'd kick one of ones out that I had in my queue and uh, bring that one in because that's not something I've really heard discussed. So, Andy, go ahead and uh, take care of that one since that came from your end of the spectrum there. Okay. Well, it's really easy to print from Lightroom. If you go into the fourth tab, it says print. Mm-hmm. So you're in the print module. Right. And Lightroom already has some Lightroom templates. And so we'll just use one of the ones they already have. And 
it's um, it's called worldwide, and you go in and you you size your um, how big of a print you want. Okay. You go in and you can customize this, and then you you throw in your images that you want. So this one would be four images. You just choose from the bottom, from your film strip at the bottom, which images. And you can just drag them in and put them in that template, yeah. right? Right. I I just I do the the command and click on a Mac. Right, and that'd be Control Click on PC. For yeah, the, that. No. <laughs> Whatever that key is that you PC users use. And then you do print to file, and you can save it to your desktop and send it straight to your lab. You can send it to your printer, or you can resize it and use it for your blog. Right. That, yep. that print module has so many different options you can use it for, and it's one of those that's re- overlooked a lot. Yeah, and I think the thing that I like most about the uh, Lightroom templates is that you can use the template as a starting point. And this, again, this kind of goes back to the whole idea behind the presets is you can use it as a starting point, and then you can drag the sliders for it, like or not the sliders, but the the guides for it, up and down, left and right, to make the print size larger, to make the print smaller, to add more prints to the photo sheet that you're working on. Uh, you can, and there's just so many options. Just looking at the Lightroom templates, there's one four by six, there's one four by six, and two uh, two by threes. There's one five by seven. There's you know a five by eleven landscape. There's uh, custom two four by six, custom four square. I mean, so many different options. And surprise, surprise, you also have user template templates that you can bring in. So you can tweak any one of those to your own ends, mm-hmm. and then you can save it as a user template. Right. I created one that is twenty by twenty and has twenty five images. Wow. Twenty by twenty with twenty five images. What is that? That's eight by tens. No, four by sixes. No, they're squares, so they're all like one and a half by one and a half, I think. Oh, okay, right, right, right. That makes sense. My math is – apparently my math is off today. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, printing by, uh, via storyboard or using the uh, the uh, preset sheets or the picture package sheets um, is a really useful thing inside of Lightroom. And I've not really done that because I'm not printing – for me, usually, I'm not printing multiple – Images at the same time. For me, if I'm printing, I'm usually printing a one-off on my own printer, or I'm sending my printers to my online um, provider, and I'm getting like 20 cop. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you can do like a fine art um, matted look with your, you know, your name at the bottom, like you would see a fine art poster in a store. You can mm-hmm. you can set that up and. Print it off like that, so it looks like it's been in the gallery. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. I actually, I'd seen that, but I think for me, I hadn't done the fine art, fine art mat one because I actually get mats custom cut. Right. And then I'll sign the bottom of the mat. But anyway, it's, it depends on what your workflow is and what your preferences are. If you'd like to have that mat look presented inside your photo, uh, these presets are a great way to do that, and these uh, contact sheet. Picture packages are available all inside of Lightroom. So it's definitely a, a cool feature that Lightroom has. Um, thank you to Andy for uh, – thank you thank you very much for contributing to that question. It was a good question that I haven't really dealt a lot with and I thought warranted some good discussion. So that was question number one. Question number two, 
And you know what? I've not been noting who wrote these questions. I'm super prepared today (laughs) (laughs) with all these technical difficulties. It's just thrown me for a loop. Our second question comes in asking about how to duplicate the golden sepia tone from one photograph into another. And the person that sent me the two images, and I'm not really going to go through those image-specific settings, but this, again, is something you can do inside of Lightroom. Uh, for me, I actually use the Lightroom presets. I, As much as we encourage playing and adjusting with uh, the presets in the develop module, I really like the default settings for the sepia tone inside of Lightroom in their black and white creative. When, they, when they've got the sepia tone, I actually will apply that. And at that point, I'm pretty much done. I don't make many other adjustments because I like that default look that usually will satisfy my needs. So to copy from one image to another, what I would just do, if you had a particular setting, is I would right-click the image inside of Lightroom. And then under your image settings, you can... um, copy the developed settings, and then apply them to another image inside your library. And that's how I usually do duplicate settings from one image to another if I'm not going the preset route. So that would be how I'd answer the question. How about you? How would you do a golden sepia toning uh, between images inside of Lightroom? Well, I've created a preset for the sepia tones that I like, but how I, how I created that was I turn, turn an image black and white, Mm-hmm. And then I go into split toning and choose um, brown golden colors and okay. play with the saturation so it can be really really gold or just just a hint of the the golds in there. All right. Um, and then save that as a preset. So then, how would you if you got the uh, if you had that particular custom look if you wanted to then apply that to two or more images would you then just apply the preset, or would you right-click and use the develop settings, copy-paste settings kind of thing? Um, I would Personally, I would save it as a preset. And go that route and just apply and presets. Very cool. Well, that's a, it's, and, there's, and that's always going to be the case, too, because regardless of whether you're in Photoshop or Lightroom, there are always going to be m- – multiple ways to accomplish the same objective. So depending on if you prefer to use presets or if you prefer more manual, quote-unquote, granular management of your photos, you can do it either way. You can apply a preset and then drag it across multiple images, or you can make manual adjustments, right-click, develop, copy settings, pick the next image, right-click, develop, paste settings. So those are the different ways that you can do things inside of Lightroom. Our last question for the day uh, came to me from someone via email, and they asked, what do you do when someone steals content from your website? And I'm assuming by content they mean text rather than images. And this has been another point of concern that a lot of people have had recently where your settings are – or not your settings, but your content has been lifted from your site and someone has started a competitive site or a different site and is basically using the same content that you have. And my answer to that question is the DCMA, the Digital Copyright Millennium Act. And what you can do, there's there's preset uh, templates or form letters that you can get on the web. And you can get these letters and you can fill in the appropriate 
names, web addresses, and use the samples, and then you send a copy to two people. The first person is the website owner, and the second is the uh, host of the website. So if they have a hosting provider, you can send a copy to the hosting provider and say this website is in violation of copyright infr- or they're you know, performing copyright infringement by lifting my content. Here's the example pages. Please remove your content in 24 hours or face DCMA litigation. And as soon as the web host sees that DCMA litigation, they know they're going to be party to it if they allow it to stay up past 24 hours. So if the owner doesn't take it down, the host will. <laughs> Just because they don't want to be involved in that kind of thing. They don't want to be party to those kinds of uh, issues because it can get pretty pricey, uh, especially if you've got your work copyright protected, which we've talked about. So that's how I deal with uh, people stealing content from my website when it comes to text. I haven't really had the need to do it very much. I've had to do it twice that I can remember. But beyond that, people have pretty much respected the uh, intellectual property that is on your website. And that's probably a more accurate term is intellectual property rather than copyright because I don't think you can really copyright textual content. I think it's more intellectual property rights. Uh, have you ever had to deal with that, Andy? What, what's been your experience on, on your end of things there? I have had to deal with it recently too with um, an article I wrote for the Tip Squirrel blog. Mm-hmm. It showed up on another blog. Um, and so we dealt with it the same way you said you would have dealt with it. And it was, it was down within four or five hours. Yeah. And, and people usually will respond relatively quickly if they see that people are serious about their content. And I guess the whole theory behind that is people will sometimes test the waters. Let's see what they can get away with kind of thing. And it's an, it's an unfortunate um, side effect of working in today's digital day and age, but it is something that does have to be addressed periodically. Uh, I think that's going to wrap things up for this week's show. We covered quite a bit. We had the news. We had the preset-style discussion, and we addressed all our listener questions and answers. So that's going to do it for episode number 50. Andy, thank you for stopping in and talking with us here at Learning Digital Photography. It's been too long. We should do this more often. We should. I had fun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's always fun. And where can people find you? They've got your website, andysmithdesigns.net. It's andysmithdesigns.com. Oh, .com. I thought it was .net. Um, You can go to my main splash page. Uh, andysmith.net and get okay. to all my photography sites and Andy Smith Designs and my blog. And your blog. And she's got some good blog content there too. And are you on the social Twitter verse, Facebook kind of stuff as well? Can people of find you? Of course I am. I am at Andy Smith <laughs> on Twitter and I am Andy West Smith on Facebook. And she's, and we're saying that jokingly because that's how we talk a lot of the time. It's, so I knew the answer to the question already, but just wanted to give a little prop there. So yeah, and, and you can find it all her spaces on Twitter, Facebook, her own website. Uh, the same goes for me at Learning Digital Photography, canonblogger.com. Email address is jason at canonblogger.com, cbjason on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next time here at Learning Digital Photography. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Thank you.